We've made it to Exodus chapter 16 on our journey through this uh, book and the experience. It's a book, but it's a great experience. The experience of God's people uh, has profound implications for really the rest of the story, for the church as a whole. Uh, There's no other event in the history of the church that's referred to as often as uh, this event in Israel uh, moving through the wilderness and delivered from Egypt. Uh, It's important for us to remember as we go through this book, as we think through this experience, that what we have in Exodus is selective material. It's not exhaustive. Uh, Not every conversation that the people had in the 40 years in the wilderness is recorded for us. Not every stop that they made along the way. Uh, This is um, specific for the people, specific for those who who were to come. Uh, to learn and to see what God has done. So we do find similar themes that are grouped together, like we're going to see again this morning. Needs of the people, the grumbling, uh, testing, the Lord's provision. Uh, Those things are are grouped uh, together to show generations to come. Um, What uh, Those those that are living in Canaan, those that would uh, live beyond that, uh, that God is the provider and the one who sustains. Uh, So we're going to look at at all of chapter 16 this morning, but we're going to read it in sections uh, as we go along. So I encourage you to follow along with me. So we'll get started here. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. We're going to stop there for now. Let's just ask the Lord's help and favor as we come under the examination of His Word. Lord, we do praise You for this, Your Word. It is what we need in these moments, how exactly we need it and apply it Maybe we're not sure yet, but we look to You, Holy Spirit, to lead us, guide us, work this Word into our hearts and into our minds, that we might know our Savior more, we might look to the provision 
of our God. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last several weeks, my neighbor has decided to redo his front yard, uh, which isn't a very large front yard, but he laid down some dirt and was going to bring in new pallets of grass, and so it was fun to watch them unload these pallets in front of his yard, and it was St. Augustine grass. He, you know, I came over and I could check it out, and it's a very hardy, broad-leafed uh, grass that's supposed to be resilient to everything in Arkansas and grow. But it reminded me of crabgrass, which I grow very successfully in my yard. And one thing you learn about crabgrass is that it all grows together on the surface and also underneath the surface. It all grows together. And so you can, you can take out a portion of it on, on the surface, but it's still underneath, very connected and very much alive. Um, and the seeds survive the winter and come back the next season. As we read through this, in Exodus 16, we see a bitterness complaining on the surface that has stopped for a period for the people of Israel. The Lord's provided water, but that root structure, what's underneath, is still quite healthy. The bitterness, that complaining spirit, that hasn't gone away. God's people are slow learners in the wilderness. Uh, but the Lord is so very, very patient. He hears, He knows, He hasn't stopped doing this since we read it in Exodus chapter 2 as He hears the cries of the people. Uh, and then in His mercy, He explains to Moses what it is He's going to do. Uh, Moses is getting a little bit more frustrated, and we'll talk about that, flesh that out a little bit more. But God takes the initiative, explains the purpose behind this test. And so we find the this, this preparation, or the, then the test followed by the rest. So preparation, test, and rest is how we're going to look at this chapter uh, as the people are in the desert of sin. And that desert of sin, it's a place designation in the wilderness. Uh, it's not a reference to rebellion against God, even though the sandal fits. Right? Um, so we left the people at a at a refreshing place, the refreshing springs of Elam at the end of the last chapter. But like most times of refreshing and renewal, it doesn't last terribly long. The testing of the Lord, His curriculum, means moving the people back out into the wilderness. If they're going to learn to trust Him, if they're going to learn to obey and have hearts inclined to obey, then it's back into the desert. This is an experience we understand in the church, in the school of Christ. We have times of refreshing, right? Those spiritual highs. Every thought you seem to have is worship, where you're, you know, you're refocused and following the Lord. Maybe you're, you're excited, you're giving thanks for His provision, but then it's back into the desert. Learning to trust in the everyday hard places in this wilderness. And so the details in verse 1 tell us that it's been exactly one month since the people had left Egypt, since the Exodus began, one month into this wilderness journey, and the pattern is already pretty entrenched. Grumbling continues. Their hearts really have not changed. And that, that root structure, and its fruit is rearing its ugly head when their stomach starts to growl. You know, maybe all the goat cheese MREs were gone uh, coming out of Egypt or whatever that looked like. Uh, but that raises some eyebrows. Um, 
how in need of food do you think the people really are at this point? They have flocks and herds. All that came out of Egypt with them. Which means they have meat available as hard as it may be to kill the family cow. They likely had milk from these animals. Maybe they had the ability to make cheese. The point is that even though food is a necessity for life, we don't assume that people are starving at this point. Um, one month into this wilderness journey. Okay, this, this is food that they want. It's food that they're craving. Uh, we get this language from Psalm 78. The Lord gave them what they craved. Perhaps Israel is confusing what they really want with what they need. Um, Craving what they don't have instead of giving thanks for what they do. Now there's an application we could sit on all morning long, right? Um, How effective are we at distinguishing between what it is we need and what it is we crave? And then that relationship between bitterness and a complaining spirit that's attached to that. I had to drive this car instead of this one. I had to settle for this house instead of this one. I had to make sandwiches all week and never made it to the whole hog. I love the whole hog. But it's not what I need. So the one thing that people are contributing in this preparations phase is is the grumbling. We hear it over and over again. They have very short-lived and skewed memory of what life in Egypt actually was like. Okay, It wasn't the golden corral like they make it sound like in verse 3. But when you can't see past your stomach, even the battle days look pretty good. So instead of crying to the Lord, they grumble against their leaders, Moses and Aaron, who are in the same boat that they are. They can't snap their fingers and produce food. So, you know, if I were going to paraphrase what, how Moses responds to this... <laughs> Look, you know, you don't shoot the messenger here. Um, you're complaining against us. It, it's really complaining against the Lord, which you, you can see Him in His glory. Um, do you remember what's happened in the last month? Um, Moses is starting to get a little more impatient. I mean, these accusations hurt. You hear what they're saying? You, you've brought us out in the wilderness to kill us. Okay, you, don't, you don't care about us. You don't love us. Uh, you know, here's Moses and Aaron who have dedicated their lives in service to God and to his people. Ouch. Um, you know, I thought of Jonathan Edwards, preacher, pastor in this, in this country, the early 18th century. And he was a central figure in the first great awakening, a time when there was a real spirit of revival and genuine repentance in the land. And so the Lord used men like Jonathan Edwards and his friend George Whitfield and others to lead through this spirit of revival. And uh, at the time, he had served his church for 23 years and he wanted to, to change a policy in the church that said only those who professed a faith in Jesus Christ could come to the Lord's table. Well, there was pushback to that. And a few lies here, a little bit of gossip here, questioning his motives, and after a vote, he's gone. And uh, so he didn't, you know, he preached his last sermon and he wasn't condemning, he was praying for the people that the Lord would bring them 
a faithful pastor. And people just left weeping over what they had done with their vote. Um, so here, here's where we go with this. And it's a tough application, but one that's going to surface again and again in the story of Exodus, in the life of the church. We must guard against a spirit of distrust or quick accusation against uh, our leaders in the church. Those who have dedicated their lives in serving God's people. Now I realize, I realize in your own experience, okay, if, you, if you've got one eye on the news and that eye half open, you're going, yeah, good luck with that. Right? We're seeing megachurch leaders just fall left and right. Um, and I want to be careful here not to make too broad of generalizations, but the Roman Catholic Church it is imploding. It's just beginning. How do we have a spirit of trust? Um, and this is hard. This is going to take our counselor, the spirit of truth, to work in us a confidence, a trust in those uh, that the Lord has appointed. Not to be naive um, or to put men and women in places where they are beyond scrutiny or accountability, but to pray for them, to befriend them, to know them. Trust that the Lord is working through His appointed leaders. Another angle we need to consider in this is that the people are grumbling against their leaders who can take no credit for what is happening have no ability to provide what it is they are asking for. Moses can't give them what they need. Only God can do this. It's to the Lord that they must inquire. So do we expect others, maybe in our families, most often that's the case, perhaps in the church, leadership, to provide what only God can provide? To provide what we need. We may not even know what it is we need. We have some relationships that may need, you know, recalibration. <laughs> you know, some of us may think that our spouses are the Lord Jesus. My wife gave up on that a long time ago, thankfully. Um, or a parent or a close friend. That they're going to meet our, our physical, emotional, spiritual fulfillment. We're going we're to find all of that in this person. Um, now, if that is your spouse and those... Physical needs are bounded by God's good design in marriage. But these relationships will let us down. They cannot satisfy our deepest needs. We must look to our deliverer. Look to our God who knows how to satisfy our hunger. So the people grumble. That's their contribution so far. Um, you know, they grumbled before and they got sweet water. So maybe, maybe they'll try it again. We'll grumble and see if, see if it works this time. But what the, what's the Lord's contribution? He tells Moses right away what it is he's going to do. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So it's mentioned four times that God hears their, their grumbling and, and just as many times that he's going to provide. You see verse 4, 6, 8, 12. The Lord will provide meat in the evening. In the morning, they would find bread. So even though they grumble, He will provide. He will feed them with more than enough. Why does He do this? Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And you say, well, wait a minute. Don't they know this already? How could they not know this? He's delivered them from Egypt. They've crossed the, the sea on dry ground. 
He's led them all the way, you know, this month through the wilderness so far. So, well, yeah, they know, but they don't really know. They don't know from the heart understanding of the character of Yahweh. What is he really like? What is his reputation? They've seen his glory in the cloud. They've seen his presence and his protection. But now, now he's showing more of his provision. He's the God who hears, who heals, who cares for his people. One commentator, he says, every time the Lord provides, he adds weight to his reputation. I love that. Adding weight to his reputation. The Lord says, here, here is more of who I am for you. Will you see it? Will you believe it? And the psalmist recalls the Lord's abundant provision in Psalm 81. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Do you hear the heart of God? His character? He protects, He heals, and He provides abundantly. So the test begins here. Verse 13. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So the Lord gives them the meat, and the bread. And this meat, this quail, migratory bird that would have been uh, migrating over that area in this particular time. And when they roost in the evening, they roost on the ground. Um, but to see that many birds in that place, at that time, in that amount, is the divine hand of the Lord. Um, as He does this. Um, uh, you know, then the bird, the birds aren't mentioned uh, again in this chapter, so it makes sense that this is a this is a one-time supper for the people of Israel. The Lord's going to provide quail again in Numbers chapter 11, but chronologically, we're talking two years later. So here is one, a one-time gift: fill their bellies with meat. No complain for meat again. We know uh, in the future, but here the Lord provides. But it's the manna that's going to continue from day to day. Can you just picture this as they, you know, they get up, they're stepping out of their tents, they're rubbing their eyes, and they, what? What is this? Um, and that word, mon, that's what, uh, it takes on two syllables in the Latin over time, and that's what we have translated in the English as manna. Um, so the response of the people is what sticks as the name uh, for this uh, substance flake light, not, not, not necessarily in all little 
pieces. It may very well have been like a, a sheet over the ground. And as the dew lifted, they could see this sheet, and as they scooped it up, it, it cracked like thin pie crust, maybe that thin layer of snow that just, as you scoop it up and put it in a jar. Um, so what do the people contribute now? They have to collect the manna every morning. Some more, some less, depending on the size of their family. The Lord gives them a measurement uh, by which to do this. And most will agree that this is a, a unique measurement here in the Omer. It's about two quarts or so. Not to be confused with a Homer, which is a hundred times more that we find uh, later in the Scriptures. Um, they're to collect in the morning what can be used for that day and that day only. They couldn't you know, stash it away for a rainy day. Um, but some of them tried in disobedience uh, to do this, to keep some for the next day. They didn't listen. They had a better idea. Uh, and Moses is angry. And, you know, wonder what, what's behind Moses' frustration and his anger. Well, how is the Lord going to respond to this? What will be its effects on the whole covenant community? Uh, and we see this throughout the story where the sin of, of one or one family affects all of God's people. Sin is never a private matter or its consequences. And so our instinct is to, you know, to want to wring the necks of these folks that are going out and, and, or that are saving this manna. But think for a second on the heritage of the people of Israel, where they come from. The Israelites are farmers. They're an agrarian people who work in the fields. So when it's time to harvest, those of you who have lived on a farm, you, know, you go out one day at a time, you know, maybe take in this row and be done. No, you take it all in, right? When it's time to harvest, you bring it all in. Um, so to collect what they needed for each day is really going to challenge the Israelites, challenge their way of thinking about the Lord's provision. Will they trust Him to provide for their daily bread. And that's a prayer that we offer pretty consistently, isn't it? We've, we've already uh, recited some of what that means for us. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Help us to trust You, to see You as the source of all that we have. Do we trust the Lord to provide what we need for today? You know, most of the time we're complaining because He hasn't provided for the week or the month what we think we need. Wisdom of Proverbs underscores the need to pray this way. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So every day in this wilderness really is a test, isn't it? Whether we'll trust the Lord, submit to His instructions for the test. To see Him as the source of all that we have. What is the Lord contributing to the test? He's the instructor. He is the very patient instructor. Who's training His people to obey through the provision that He gives. And so there, there have been several attempts to explain manna in, in natural causes, but none of them hold up. Um, every morning, except one, each week, 
there was enough manna at every place that the people of Israel stopped. That is the miraculous power of God, the generosity of God. The God of Israel is not a tyrant just waiting you know, to squash his people in judgment. Though he'd be entirely just in, in doing so, he's patient, training them to trust. Training them for life in the land. And God's character is really made known through the collection of manna. Uh, gathering what they needed for each day helps guard against greediness, actually encourages a, a generosity toward others in the community. Here, we've collected what we need, help you collect what you need. The measurement helps with that. So it helps keep the Lord's provision in perspective for the people. So if we're we're carrying great anxiety over the future or we're just indulging in gluttony in the present, what about the character of God might we be forgetting? That He will meet our needs as He often does through His people. See how Paul makes a reference to this chapter in 2 Corinthians 8. Actually encouraging the church to Mutual generosity. Here's what he says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So every morning the people observed, in the Old Testament, the people observed this fairness as they followed the Lord's instruction. And then on the, the sixth day of the week, they collect twice as much uh, because that whole manna cafe is closed on the seventh day. So let me pick up at verse 22. So moving now to rest, looking at the preparation, we've looked at the test now to rest. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. There were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, He gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. So this is the first time we read of the Sabbath in the Scriptures. 
so it appears that this concept is now being introduced into the life of God's people. Sabbath means simply to cease, preparing them then for the moral law that's going to come later at Mount Sinai. Now that people can practice this ceasing every seven days, it becomes part of their routine, their rhythm of life. All voluntary work is to stop. And in the ancient world, the most common voluntary work is to collect food. So they, would, they would still have to go out and feed their animals, uh, milk the cows, things like that. But the gathering and the baking and the boiling, that needed to be done on the sixth day. Uh, can't help but wonder if it was the same folks who were trying to keep man in the pantry earlier are the ones that are going out on the seventh day morning uh, to see if there's more. Not realizing yet how important this rest was and is. Again, patterned after the work and rest of their Creator, the Lord gives them what they need. We'll talk more about this when we get to the, the moral law in chapter 20. But it's clear that this is a gift from God. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Verse 29. Mark chapter 2, New Testament, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees over His apparent misuse of the Sabbath. And He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's given to the people out of the Lord's generosity, good purpose. He knows what they need and rest is a part of that. Whether they believe it or not at this point. It's not just any rest either. Look at there in verse 23. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. This is a holy ceasing. Uh, not, just, not just stopping from work, but, but actively refocusing. A recentering on the things of God. The Lord will provide the means to make this happen on that seventh day. If they trust, if they follow his commands. And so for the new covenant people of God, this Sabbath rest is found on that resurrection day. It's found its place there on that resurrection day, the first day of the week. Does Sunday look different for us than the other six days? You're here in worship, which is a very important part. Corporate worship, private worship, to cease from, from our work as an act of trust in the Lord's provision. And if our God has provided what we need in the Sabbath, it is to our great peril to ignore that or to treat it as uh, optional. And so the final verses, they're almost like a, a footnote to this great episode. Uh, the Lord instructs them to keep one omer for the generations to come. So that they could see, they could remember God's provision. We're not sure if this manna was, was collected in the near term there and then carried uh, along uh, in their journey over the years and eventually placed in the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Covenant was the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, the tablets of stone that, that Moses carried down from Mount Sinai could also be the, the testimony we have in view here. Um, so maybe the jar of manna was placed alongside the, the stone tablets until the building of the tabernacle. 
And we do know verses 35 and 36, it had to come either at the very end of Moses' life, as he's recording what had happened over the last 40 years, but the people are still eating manna when Moses dies. And so, very possible, another inspired author added this comment to explain what had happened to later generations. So it shouldn't surprise us that there is this much detail here in chapter 16. A jar of manna is only one of three things that were kept in that Ark of the Testament, in the Ark of the Covenant, as a teaching tool. The Lord's power and His provision. This is something that people are going to witness. The miraculous, day in and day out, for 40 years. When Jesus was in His own wilderness, Heath mentioned this a few minutes ago, He was hungry. The devil tempts Him to take the stones and turn them into bread. Maybe a nice manna loaf. We don't know. And Jesus responds by quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 8, which alludes to this very chapter. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let me ask you, are you hungry? What are you hungry for? So of course, it's 11.53 on Sunday, and you've been talking for almost a half an hour. Of course we're hungry. Our, our stomachs are starting to grumble. Maybe you feel a little bit like those 5,000 plus people sitting, listening to Jesus talk, who then provides for their tummies and feeds them. Do you remember what happened after that? They were full, so that food coma sent in, they went to sleep, and they woke up, and Jesus is gone. You go to John chapter 6 to get the details of this. And brrr, their stomachs are growling again. Where's Jesus? Well, the boat's gone, so they get in their boats, and they, they go across the, uh, the water, and they, they find Jesus. And Jesus, Rabbi, where have you been? Do you, do you know what time it is? <laughs> Um, you know, the, the whole thing about you know, believing and doing the works of God. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Oh, we have chapter and verse for it. What, what, what do you have, Jesus? Um, Jesus had just fed them the night before. Uh, they, they don't need another sign. They've seen plenty. They have every reason to believe in Jesus. And so here's what Jesus tells them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Well, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The very bread that they needed the most was standing right in front of them. So metaphorically, they needed to, to feast on Jesus, believing, putting their trust in this God-man. For life in the near term, now, for life, for all eternity. That's God's design for us. His purpose through this whole wilderness training 
That they would look to Him in faith, submit to His control, His leading for the rest of their days. The real hunger of our hearts is satisfied only in Jesus. I mean, you'll eat food here in just, just a little while, but you're going to be hungry again. But when your soul feasts in faith on the bread of life, your hunger will ultimately be satisfied. And if He gives what we need, then what we need the most is the giver Himself. In the most basic sense, that the physical, the temporal we've seen moves us to the spiritual, the eternal. Manna shows us that we need Jesus. Every hour, every day, every moment. Is it Jesus that we hunger for? So are you, are you feasting on Him through His Word, through prayer, through time and fellowship, worship of the church? You know, next week we're going to feast on Him in a very tangible way uh, at this table together. And if our stomachs are growling now for the temporal, how much more should we look forward to what unites us for all eternity? So come hungry next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are hungry for You. You've given us Your Word that feeds us. You, Lord Jesus, are the living Word. And so we look to You as our Good Shepherd, one who leads us, guides us, feeds us. Lord, satisfy our hunger anew this day and each day. We offer this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.